You're listening to the EM Ottawa podcast. Yes, we're back with another episode of the EM Ottawa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thamanathan. You know, I say we're back because we took a little summertime fun time break and I didn't really tell anyone we were going to do that. So that's on me. I'm sorry that I left you hanging there for a few weeks or months. <laughs> uh, I think we can all relate to that, that sometimes, you know, we've all left a party without saying goodbye before. And sometimes you got to crawl back to that party because you forgot your hat. So here I am coming back to get my hat. It, does, it doesn't really make any sense because I, I look terrible in hats in general. Anyways, speaking of looking bad in hats, our guest today is Dr. Mickey McGinty. She completed her residencies in internal medicine and infectious disease at the Ottawa Hospital, and she's now a clinician scientist whose work typically focuses on HIV cure, women with HIV, and maternal fetal immunology with a view to advancing our understanding of maternal vaccination. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, she also worked on clinical trials of COVID-19 therapies, vaccines, and on studies of the immune response to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, I should say she spends her summer downtime avoiding ticks by playing D&D indoors. If you know, you know. And she is here today to give us some pearls and wisdom regarding the workup and treatment and all sorts of facts about Lyme disease. She's also, uh, this might be new to you, it was certainly new to me, the concept, the disease entity of anaplasmosis. We're going to talk a little bit about that as it is on the rise in Canada uh, and parts of the Northeast United States. So it's uh, probably worth getting familiar with. We're almost at the tail end of summer here, but you know what? Better late than never. Now, my original intent was to make this a single episode, but guess what? There was so much good content, and I just could not bring myself to cut any of it because it was so important that instead we're going to break it up in two episodes. So part one is going to be the Lyme disease update, and part two is going to be learning about anaplasma. So this is the first part on Lyme disease. Mickey McGinty, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to come and talk about tick-borne diseases that are becoming a problem here in, in our region. So I should probably say off the top, we're not going to be doing a comprehensive like core content review about Lyme disease, or, and certainly not all tick-borne illnesses. There's oodles and oodles of FOMED resources about Lyme disease that's relevant for the EM practitioner. If I were you, I would go out and Google, you know, Lyme disease emergency medicine, and just pick one of those and review it so you, you get your bearings. We're going to be alluding to, you know, just jogging your memory every so often for specific points. But today we're going to focus on more specific questions about how the epidemiology is changing and some updates on treatment and, you know, some the nuances of workup. Now, Mickey, we work and live in eastern Ontario, which is well known for being a, a place that has Lyme disease uh, in its ticks, but it's actually found across all of North America. I mean, there's like sort of three major regions they talk about. There's like the northeastern states, like all the way from Virginia up to where we are in eastern Canada with Ontario and Quebec and even parts of the eastern maritime provinces. But as far west as like the upper Midwest, like Wisconsin and Minnesota, and even on the west coast in California. Now, here in Ontario, is is it just in my head or is Lyme disease actually becoming a little bit more prevalent than it was in the past? Yes, probably five years ago, it would have been incredibly rare to see a case of locally acquired Lyme disease in where we are in Ottawa. 
they did see them in Kingston and in the Niagara Peninsula, the places in Ontario that are much further south. As of like last year and this summer, we see them fairly often. It's become sort of a common presenting problem in, uh, in the summertime uh, for people in the region. In 2017, I think there were like a thousand total cases and um, there were only like 300 a year for the, for the three or four years before that. And it's gone up since then as well. So yeah, there's a dramatic increase in the amount of Lyme disease that we see in, in the province. And do you think this is driven primarily by people being aware of the diagnosis and looking for it? Or do you think there's other factors at play that are leading towards that? No, there's just more Lyme disease. <laughs> it's not It's not that we weren't uh, recognizing it before. I mean, there there's always going to be a problem of under-recognition when a new disease enters an area because we're not used to seeing it. But uh, there just legitimately are uh, more Lyme-carrying ticks and therefore more Lyme disease here now than there were 10 years ago. And that it has to do with lots of complex dynamics of climate change as well as habitat change for the typical reservoir animals of of these diseases and there are there are people including scientists at the University of Ottawa like Dr. Manisha Kulkarni who uh, are studying these things and have a, a really good idea of the dynamics of those tick populations and when they do sampling they do find more infected ticks as time has gone on. And this stuff can be pretty fast moving. For example, when I started residency, the prevalence of uh, Borrelia and these ticks in the Ottawa region, I think if I remember right, was sort of like low teens, mid-teens. And in that study you just referenced, they, they found that the local uh, number had gone up to be almost 30% of ticks carrying Borrelia, which is well above that sort of the 20% threshold that the IDSA uses to say it's an endemic area. It's more that we're also seeing a lot more of a change in the epidemiology of the patient presentation. So for, I would say, um, I've been, this is my, like, I've been in practice here for one year, but I did a lot, some additional fellowship time between completing my ID training and starting. And as an ID fellow, uh, most of the time when we were seeing Lyme, it was somebody who had been camping or uh, cottaging in one of the sort of higher incidence areas, in particular around Kingston. Um, and now we see tons from places like Perth, uh, Smith's Falls, Almont. So the epidemiology is closing in on us. Like the ticks are, get, are, are genuinely getting closer and people aren't having to travel as far to get infected. Now, I have observed that lots of patients and I think just sort of the, the folklore in the community and even some academic resources put a lot of emphasis on identifying the tick. You know, there's like diagrams in every textbook about how to tell one tick from another, whether it's a deer tick or a dog tick or what have you. If someone brings in the tick to you, does that help in any way? Is that of any real practical relevance? Does it ever change your management? No, it's never once helped me <laughs> to see or know about the tick. Um, and we do sometimes get called to help identify the ticks. I mean, the, I think the, the physicians have been taught that, that they're supposed to try and do that. And they're well-meaning, but they don't recognize them. So they ask for an expert's help. And unfortunately, I am also not an expert on what the ticks look like. I'm not an entomologist. Sure, right. I'm an infectious disease specialist. And the, the reality is the vast majority of the time, there are no ticks. So we, it's not like we regularly see them enough that we would recognize them um, easily, any, any more easily than anyone else comparing a photograph to, a, like in a book, to a, a real life tick. On top of the fact that it might, it is probably genuinely helpful to identify the type of tick when you have multiple types of ticks carrying different human pathogens in them in the area that you live. 
So if you live in an area that has Lone Star ticks as well as Ixodes scapularis, as well as Dog Star ticks or whatever other 50 kinds of ticks there are, and those things carry different diseases, then it probably is genuinely useful to be able to tell the difference because you'll be able to tell what prophylaxis and or testing you want to do based on what bit them. But here we really only have, um, as far as disease carrying ticks so far, we really only have Ixodes scapularis. So we're going to assume that it could have been Ixodes scapularis and it's most likely going to be Ixodes scapularis that someone was bitten by. So for, for us, it's not that practical to work hard to identify the tick. I love that your answer is kind of like the typical ID answer, which is that you have to consult your local antibiogram. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Like what you just told me is like essentially <laughs> Ask like... Ask your local antibiogram. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So let's say you actually have a pretty good story that there was a tick bite. Does the duration that it was attached actually matter? Does the amount of engorgement actually matter? Does the time window since the tick was removed and they come to see you, does any of that actually matter? I know our local public health guideline says if it's attached for more than 24 hours, that's high risk. I know the CDC says 36 hours. Do these numbers actually, are, are they hard stops? Do you actually care about how to try to calculate them? And does it ever you know, help you in terms of managing these patients? So I, I think there's a, a good science answer for this, and then there's a, a practical real-life treating patients answer. So in point of fact, it does matter how long the tick is attached. There were lots of very well-done studies to show us that the Borrelia in particular is not transmitted in the first 24 hours of the tick attachment. So it really does have to be on there longer than that for any Borrelia to cross from the tick to the person. That being said, the vast majority of people who have a tick-borne illness don't even recall having had a tick attached. So just because you see one on them doesn't mean they didn't have three, and this is the only one that's left. So it just because they have one that you don't think has been attached for that long, they have clearly had an exposure because they've got a tick on them. So they could have had four, eight, or 12 ticks, and they only found the one. So they're still, they've still been exposed in a practical sense, and it's really impossible, generally speaking, for you to, to remember off the top of your head what, what stage of engorgement the tick is by looking at it, unless you're seeing these things way more often than we are. Like, you know, if you lived in um, New York State, I bet, I bet Emerge Docs and Family Docs are pretty good at making a judgment about how long a tick has been attached. But right. I don't know that we are experts at that yet. Um, and nor in practical experience of treating patients has that ever really mattered because what they have now presented to you with is exposure to ticks. And what about that second question about the recommendation to start prophylaxis within 72 hours of tick removal? Uh, since removal is it's an easier one to measure and, and typically that uh, removal falls somewhere in the 24 to 36 hour range because that's when they usually become noticeable to people. And even if on the outside, let's say you actually got bitten two days before that by the tick that's going that infected you and you haven't you didn't notice that one before it fell off the likelihood that that day or two is going to meaningfully impact efficacy of the doxycycline dose is probably low so i wouldn't not give someone doxycycline because it was it's been you know 84 hours <laughs> since the tick right, was attached right 
So um, there's some flexibility there. If they come in and say I was bitten last week, it's too late. It's too late for the prophylaxis to do anything. But there's a window around that 72 hours where it might still be useful. You just would want to counsel people that just because they got prophylaxis does not necessarily mean they're not going to get Lyme disease. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty reasonable approach. Now, let's talk erythema migrans. A lot seems to hinge on getting this this little nugget correct. And I imagine that you get called a lot when you're on call. A lot of pictures being sent to you via the EMR chat or possibly by text saying, hey, is this erythema migrans? What are some pitfalls you've noticed when making this diagnosis at the bedside? The most common myths of erythema migrans that we see is when it's in, a sec- in the disseminated or secondary stage of Lyme. So we very often get called about patients with febrile illnesses and a bizarre rash. And it's because it's disseminated erythema migrans where they have multiple lesions on every, like sometimes everywhere or just sometimes a handful of different um, bullseye rash lesions that are in different stages of fading. And people tend not to think about that as erythema migrans, I think, because they're, they're, they've been taught academically to think about it as this, the initial targetoid lesion. But in secondary Lyme, it's not uncommon to see a disseminated erythema migrans rash. And that's the one we see is being under-recognized the most. Because it's quite clear to us when we walk in the room that it's Lyme disease. <laughs> like, it's the first thing we think when we see these these disseminated erythema migrans rashes. But um, so it often seems bizarre to us that nobody recognized it. But that's I think what what is most commonly missed in primary care. Interesting. Yeah, I I can't as I often say like I can't think of an example that I was that uh, befuddled by it, which means that either it's never happened or I've missed it several times. <laughs> Um, which is like... It's probably never happened. It's still not that common. Right? I mean, I can remember one time I was asked to see the patient because the patient gave a history of exposure to mice at his cottage and had a rash and a fever. And so the um, physician was concerned about hantavirus, which, I mean, good to be concerned about. It's a nice pull. Um, but I walked in the room and he had a, a rash of disseminated erythema migrans. It was it was very clearly secondary Lyme. And if he was at his cottage crawling around near the mice, chances are there were lots of ticks out there too. Yeah, those ticks are feeding on mice and humans, I guess. A, yeah. a bounty of food for them. Okay, so what about the timing of the erythema migrans rash? I, I have seen... Uh, Reports of people getting tripped up by when the rash started, even with a good exposure history. Sometimes it's hard to tease apart whether that little red macule is, is this the start of erythema migraines or is this just the early sort of like allergic response to the tick bite? Is there any good way to tease those two apart? Yeah, unfortunately, this is an area where it really is clinical experience that's going to be the teacher because even within erythema migraines, the rash can present quite differently. So lots of things can be erythema migrans. Um, some of the, some people have really classic targetoid lesions with the central bite that becomes more, more inflamed. Some people have no central redness at all. Other people's, other people have like a more, like a more hyperpigmented ring, but they have faint erythema throughout. So people are a bit confused about whether that's clearing or not. In general, if someone has a, especially if they have a history of exposure and they have the, a rash that you think might be erythema migrans, it's probably better to assume that it could be erythema migrans than to try and explain it away some other way. But, and the problem with it is it's so variable, even in, in not just in, in appearance, but in timing. Like you can get the rash as early as two or three days after the tick bite or as late as 30 days after. So 
the, even getting the history of the timing for exposure isn't necessarily going to help you narrow down whether you think this rash is EM or not. Hmm, that's good. It's good to know. It definitely is. It's definitely not painful. I don't think I've ever seen one that was painful. They're not supposed to be itchy, but they can. I have seen people complain that they were itchy. Yeah, it stands to reason there might be a little local histamine release. Uh, I have. I agree with you. I've never heard of it being painful. Yeah, if it's tender to touch, I would. I would really not. I would assume it's something other than the erythema migrans. Right. Um, Start that Vanco. Um, yeah, <laughs> start that. Get that oratravisin out. Yeah, for the, the double pants <laughs> we were talking about. So let's talk about prophylaxis. When it comes to giving that prophylactic dose of doxy, 200 milligrams, the IDSA is like pretty clear about who to give it to. They say only adults and children within 72 hours of removal of a high-risk tick bite. And that means the tick has to be Ixodes, and it's an area where Borrelia, that is Lyme disease, is highly endemic, and the tick was attached for greater than 36 hours. In the absence of meeting this criteria, they suggest maybe a a wait-and-watch approach. In your experience, how have you seen this uh, recommendation get misapplied? No, I think, um, you know, it has a good easy to follow formula. If it's been under three days since the exposure, you give the dose of doxycycline and that works really well. You know, the reason we don't give it later is because there there is fairly good evidence that delayed prophylaxis doesn't mitigate the presentation of Lyme disease. So it won't be helpful, but it also isn't going to hurt that person or hurt the treatment of their disease if they get it later, if they happen to get a dose of doxycycline. Yeah, I never thought I'd hear an ID doc recommend to an eMERGE doc that to err on the side of giving the antibiotics, but (laughs) here we are. Let's pivot a bit and talk about the lab tests, so the less clinical stuff in terms of making the diagnosis and and doing the workup. When's the right time to send Lyme serology? I know I'm guilty of this too. As soon as the diagnosis enters my head, I'm thinking I got to send the serology right away. What are some mistakes you've seen people make in terms of the timing and the indications for sending those tests? I think you you put it really well. I often I feel like people are often have the sense that they feel obligated to send a confirmatory test when when they're seeing patients w- with what they think is Lyme disease. And I don't know if that pressure comes from like we're just sort of now a culture of doing tests in medicine to try and identify diagnoses or if the patients put some pressure on to have some kind of test that tells them what the answer is. But if someone is presenting to you with acute Lyme disease, early disease, with erythema migraines, there is zero utility in sending um, serology for Lyme. It takes uh, at least three weeks and up to six weeks to develop antibodies against Borrelia. So unless you're asking them to come back or handing them a requisition and telling them to get a test in three to six weeks, (laughs) it's it's not gonna be helpful for us or for the patient to have a test uh, for Lyme disease when they have an acute presentation. And it takes like a week to come back anyway, so you're gonna have to make your treatment decision without the test. And what about a follow-up plan? If you have access to an infectious disease consultation as an outpatient, and you've treated someone for Lyme disease, do you always have to refer them for follow-up? Yeah, so I guess I would say it's definitely not necessary to send people for whom you have treated Lyme disease to see us after the fact, unless they are, you know, symptoms, primary symptoms don't resolve or recur because that 
can happen in a minority of diseases, just like all infections. Sometimes they don't go away with the first course of therapy, although it's very rare. But someone who has had acute Lyme disease treated with an appropriate regimen of antibiotics doesn't need to see a specialist afterward. If you feel uncomfortable about something in the case, um, or you're, you're just uncomfortable with the disease entity in general, we're never going to say no. <laughs> we're always happy to see someone and provide additional care if you feel they need it, either for counseling or for like more discussion around their disease or to, for, to follow up on their, their treatment. We, we can be there to do that, but almost everyone with acute Lyme gets better. And when they come to see us two months later, because that's the first opening we had for follow-up, yeah. they're better and they don't remember why they're there to see, to see us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the Lyme encephalitis is affecting their uh, long term. <laughs> yeah. Now, I got a question for you that came up recently with regards to a cranial neuropathy that you think might be related to Lyme disease, but without the actual diagnosis confirmed yet. Maybe there's just a history of a possible tick exposure. Is there any role for co-administering steroids for a facial nerve palsy, sort of as if you were treating like a more typical Bell's? Is there any downside to giving steroids and Lyme treatment at the same time? Is there a downside? If you are confident that it's Lyme and you're treating um, like Bell's palsy, a few days of steroids is, is sometimes recommended in some of the literature for management of, of Lyme neuropathies. It, it won't hurt as long as you're comfortable that you know what you're treating and that's the right indication to use the steroids and it's not a mystery, <laughs> mystery disease you're giving steroids without knowing why. It's not clear that there is a long-term benefit. Like, it's not clear that it's going to be better protective. It just might help their symptoms get better faster. So if it's really bothersome, there's there's no harm in giving some steroids for a mononeuropathy or a cranial nerve pathology. Yeah, I should point out that in that most recent uh, IDSA guideline for the uh, treatment of Lyme disease, they say there's no real recommendation for adjunctive corticosteroids if you think it's Lyme neuropathy but that it's worth starting early within that 72-hour window as you normally would for idiopathic uh, cranial neuropathies just because the benefit is is earlier than later, although they, they're pretty explicit. You know, There's not great evidence one way or the other to say that it either you know harms in terms of some immunosuppressive effects or benefits if there is Lyme disease on board as well. Now, when it comes to the treatment duration for uncomplicated early Lyme disease, so that erythema migrans sort of population, I was always taught that you had to give the doxy for 21 days um, certain resources say 14 to 21. The most recent edition of the Emerge textbook that I studied says still says 21 days. But the updated guidelines actually say you can just get away with just 10 days. And an ID staff that I spoke to recently about this mentioned also 10 to 14 days. What's the right number? Is, is there any rationale for why we should go earlier or longer? It's, it's probably treat it's more treatment practice and experience but so yeah 10 days of doxycycline is perfectly reasonable i usually give 14 not for a, like not because i think 14 is better than 10 just because that's the practice i've had um i do sometimes give 21 days and i'm more likely to give 21 days if there are features that suggest dissemination um, so if it's, you know, been at least two or three weeks since they could have had a possible exposure and they're presenting with a delayed onset of their rash or a recurrence of fever like that late, then sometimes I give 21 because I'm not really sure if it's primary or early secondary disease that I'm treating. But um, it would be perfectly reasonable in that scenario to also give 14 days of doxycycline, which is um, 
a recommended treatment duration for that phase too. You know, it's actually a little reassuring to hear you say that. I I think sometimes the textbooks and other clinicians make it seem like this should be a super black and white distinction between early or, you know, uh, later disseminated or what have you. And sometimes when, you know, with the patient in front of you, it's not always that clear. Yeah. Uh, So I got to say, I find it a little validating to hear you say that too. Yeah, infections are, they're, they're processes with living organisms and immune responses. They don't go from phase one to phase two <laughs> discreetly. They pass through a spectrum of severity until they get to phase two. Oof, I love that. Very, very wise words there, Dr. McGinty. Okay, any other thoughts about the diagnosis, workup, treatment of Lyme disease before we move on? Yeah, so there's one other thing I want to add, which will apply both to Lyme and to anaplasma, which we're going to talk about after this. So I commonly see, in particular, if patients are sick enough that they maybe need to be admitted for a couple days to manage their symptoms, which happens from time to time with with, uh, Lyme and anaplasma, is they often have very severe headaches. (laughs) And headache is a, a common presentation of the disease, and it's almost never meningitis, but people are often tempted to treat them as though they're meningitis just because of the presence of headache. And that's not a great justification for escalating your treatment to intravenous. In particular, if they have no physical exam evidence of meningitis and all that they have is headache, because headache, even including quite severe headache, is um, pretty common when uh, in the febrile stages of these diseases. You know, I think the last... um... To, I mean, you got to think who you're talking to, right? Like emergency docs, fever, headache, you know, the, the people tend to get worried, right? <laughs> yeah. um, although it's I, not I, just you. Med- medicine has the same, it tends to get into the same. I think the last few times I've seen, the last anaplasma I saw, and uh, I can remember vividly a Lyme I saw and emerged a couple of years ago where the headache was severe enough that they put the person on ceftriaxone, but they had no meningismus. They just had really bad headache, which is... Now, and now, like in the post-COVID era, I think I'm kind of hopeful maybe people will recognize that severe headache is just sometimes headache, because COVID would typically make people get quite a bad headache. And it wasn't because the disease was causing encephalitis or meningitis. It was just it just gives you a bad headache to have that much cytokine. Yeah, totally. And, and that's kind of what I was alluding to is just that you know I think I feel like in the last year and a half people got a lot more comfortable even with fever and severe headache, right? Like they're like, yeah. oh, this is like what we've seen, uh, you know, uh, a number of times. Is there any reason to deviate from usual care about when you would do an LP if you're considering a tick-borne illness? No, and I would sort of say that it's pretty common sense that if you are concerned enough that you think the person should get IV therapy for to cover it, then they, what they need is an LP so that you can determine if that's necessary or not. Um, and you get your answer really quickly, right? Like if the if it hasn't if the cell count is normal, then there's absolutely no reason to give intravenous therapies. Yeah, if they're if they're that sick that you need to empirically treat, you do what you got to do, right? But uh, I, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like that's probably like, you know, one in a thousand or what have you. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for Tick-Borne Illness Part 1 with Dr. Mickey McGinty. Thanks to her. And stay tuned for the upcoming episode Part 2 on anaplasmosis. You can follow her on Twitter at M-Y-K-K-Y-M-C-G. And if you want to check out more great FOMED content from the group here in Ottawa, please go to emottawablog.com. Thanks as always to Yusang for providing our music. That's him you heard on the intro, this outro, and all those little bits in between. And as always, if you've got something you want to hear about on the show, or if you've got a case, a topic you want to talk about, please get in touch. 
You can always follow me and message me on Twitter at Rajiv Thava. That's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Can't wait to see you again on the next episode. You know, Mickey, thanks so much for making time to be on the show today. And then you would say something like, oh, hey, great to be here. You know, happy to chat. I'm so happy to be here with you today, Rajiv. Okay, it needs to sound slightly less sarcastic than that. <laughs> Just dial back the sarcasm by like 5%. Okay. <laughs>